0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We promised you an extra episode this week, which will be about Trump and Mueller and who the Democrats might nominate to take Trump on. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Helen Thompson is with me. And we're also speaking to Gary Gerstel, who is not in Cambridge, where Helen and I am. He is in Boston, right, Gary? Yes. Where it's colder than it is here but less Brexity, I think.
1: Uh, most definitely less Brexity, yeah.
0: We've obviously over the maybe the last year been kind of building up to a moment in the Trump presidency, which let's call it Mueller time. We don't have the Mueller report. We have the four page summary from the attorney general, but something has definitely changed. And before we get on to where we think we are in the arc of the Trump presidency, Where we are now with the Mueller report feels to me like a classic case of expectation mismanagement, perhaps on the part of the Democrats, in that the bar was set so high that it now seems like almost anything maybe was going to be a disappointment, but this particularly is a disappointment. Do you think this was fundamentally about expectation mismanagement? Or do you think actually, there's something more substantive going on here, which is simply that, The report, when we finally see it, will be a kind of exoneration?
1: Well, there certainly has been expectation mismanagement. I think there's shock in liberal quarters here. Uh, Liberals are adjusting to it now, the liberal mainstream press. Jubilation in conservative quarters. Uh, But I think the realization is dawning that many people misread Mueller. He really is a straight arrow. And all these schemes were hatched about the sequence of his indictments leading up to and into the Trump family. And if they didn't get Trump himself, they would get um, his son or someone close to him, and that would precipitate a crisis and a resignation or maybe some grounds for impeachment. We now can see that Mueller was reporting the indictments in the news as he received them without a grander plan in mind. And in that way, I think he's a He's a he's a straight arrow, and, and he has been misread. I also think that uh, we didn't ask the right historical questions about this investigation. Uh, Mueller is an experienced man. He's part of the Washington establishment. Uh, he's got a long record in law and prosecution. He certainly would have been asking himself, what are the models for me uh, as a special prosecutor? And he would have thought a lot about two people. One is Ken Starr, who conducted the investigation of Clinton. Starr was a zealot uh, who pursued every lead, often in a prurient manner. And uh, he disgraced himself in a way that he will never, ever recover from. And the other model is Jaworski, uh, the special prosecutor in the Watergate trial. And uh, this, I think, is the man who Mueller modeled himself after. And he was expecting or hoping or setting a bar for his own indictment or finding of collusion in Trump's case, he was setting a bar similar to the Watergate bar where Jaworski got actual tapes of Nixon covering up a crime. If we think of that bar and if we think of that model and if we imagine that Mueller might have had a similar threshold for himself, all this was not seriously considered as a set of possibilities. But I think Jaworski was much more the model for Mueller than Starr was, which meant Mueller was imagined as the man who was going to save the Republic, uh, and bring Trump down and bring this crisis to an end. And clearly, that is not what happened in this case.
0: So so that's really interesting in, in the way you just described it, which hadn't occurred to me, that as the indictments were happening, along the way, people thought, well, if this is where we are now, imagine how big the report is going to be, you know, this must be building up to something. But you say what, what people should have recognized is that this was an investigation that was revealing itself as it went along. And so in a sense, people should have recognized that this wasn't the build up to something, this was it.
1: Yes, yes, I think that's the case. Now, the caveat, of course, is that no one outside a few lawyers in the Department of Justice has actually seen this report, And until we see the report, uh, and it may take some time uh, to see parts of it, we won't really know what's in it. There's another theory which may still prove to be relevant, and that is that Mueller defined his charge narrowly to uh, prove collusion or not, and then to prove obstruction or not. And so all kinds of things that he discovered about Trump and the Trump family, all kinds of business dealings, uh, corruption cronyism, Uh, he did not consider that part of his remit. But I imagine that in the report, there's a a lot of material pertinent to that. And one of the theories is that he was preparing material for the Southern District of New York, the attorney there to allow that office to pursue Trump on these other charges. That theory may still prove to be correct. There may be other grounds for pursuing Trump, but the ground for collusion, I think, uh, has been undercut. And I think that will not be restored.
2: I think one of the things that is, is, is clear is that the the people who on the Democratic side who who pushed the collusion narrative missed two things. The first of them, in a way, is the most staggering is, is that they never stopped to think what it would mean if this were true. Because what it would mean was those, that during the course of an election campaign, a presidential campaign colluded with... At the moment, the major power with whom the United States has most difficult relations and that the US intelligence agencies were unable to do anything about it. Despite the fact, and this is where i would get onto to the second point, is that they had a counterintelligence operation in action against the Trump campaign from some point in the spring, summer of 2016. And it was evident reasonably quickly after the Mueller investigation started that some people who were in the FBI who were pretty anti-Trump, like um, Peter Strzok, did not think there was anything in that counterintelligence operation. That came out from you know, his text messages. So I, I think if you put together what it would mean to say that this collusion charge was true... And the evidence that was coming out about the counterintelligence operation and that nothing actually in the end had come of it, despite all these visa warrants and, the, and, and activity, etc. I don't think it's very surprising that in the end that Muller delivered what seems to have been the kind of report he has on the subject of collusion. The question of obstruction of justice is another matter.
0: And do you think there's a danger now, Gary, that the expectations game goes the other way? Because like you say, no one outside of a fairly narrow circle has seen the full Mueller report, the Barr letter essentially has given Republicans reason to crow and Trump reason to crow times whatever. But now there is at least the possibility that the expectations are being mismanaged on the Republican side. And like you say, there's enough in there that this is not over.
1: Well, there's already been some backing off on the part of Republican partisans, uh, uh, the claims of total exoneration. One is not hearing that anymore in, in in the media. So yes, I think there is a danger that expectations could go in the other direction. What we've heard from Barr's summary of the report that Mueller decided not to come to a judgment on obstruction is very odd. And trying to imagine how he came to that conclusion. In other words, prosecutors don't often issue a report that leaves the interpretation. Of a possible crime up to other parties. It's, after all, the duty of a prosecutor to collect all the information and then make a judgment. Uh, And so, what's really unusual about this case is that Mueller, a very experienced prosecutor, decided not to make a decision on it. I'm trying to think why. Uh, One possibility is what does it mean to indict a sitting president or to suggest that charges of this sort can be brought against him? He may have shied away from that. The Jaworski model is don't endanger the republic. Uh, he may have very much had that in mind. Another possibility is what's it like to conduct this investigation with the kind of ferocious intimidation that Trump visited upon anybody involved in this investigation over the last two years? In other words, has Trump in some respect been successful in obstructing justice through the force of his intimidation through? Firing sessions, uh constant threats to fire Mueller. Did Mueller blink at a very crucial moment? Uh that's a second possibility. A third possibility is ferocious disagreements within his very talented and accomplished staff. They may have tried for quite a long time to come to a common understanding and finally gave up. And unless he may have been working with some kind of consensus model, and unless he had achieved a certain level of consensus, he wasn't about to lay the groundwork for indicting or impeaching the president of the United States. These are all possibilities. Of course, the struggle now is just to get the report out in a way that can answer some of these questions. And I imagine there there might be a long struggle over this. Some version of the report will be uh, released by mid-April, but very large stretches of it may be redacted and uh, there may be long struggles in the court to get the full report out.
0: And the other thing that will happen, until the full report is released, is that divisions in the Democratic Party between those people who are going to pursue this line and want to insist that Trump has not been exonerated. And until we see the full report, we don't know the full story. And those Democrats who want to move on, that division will simply be raw until the full report is published. Because after all, for the people who suspect conspiracy they've got another reason to suspect conspiracy, which is the mismatch between the four page bar letter and whatever they think is lying unrevealed behind it.
1: Yes, that's that's possible. Although one another effect of the report may be to focus the Democrats attention on the 2020 election. And to come to the conclusion that the moment of revelation where where Trump is revealed in the glory of his corruption and chicanery and It becomes clear to everyone in America that the man must go. A lot of people in America have been waiting for this moment for three and a half years now. It hasn't come. It's unlikely to come. And so one of the effects of the report may be to focus Democratic energy on the 2020 election as the mechanism for removing this man from office in an ordinary rather than an extraordinary way.
2: I think the other thing, though, that is still you know not clear is, is what the Republicans are going to do about it in terms of how much that they are going to pursue the question of how the counterintelligence operation against the Trump campaign was pursued and why it came about and what the relationship is between it and the Mueller investigation being set up in the first place. So. I think that even if the Democrats decide they want to move on about this, I don't think that's entirely in their hands, because I think that there's a whole set of other questions that may well come to light when the redacted version of the Mueller report comes out.
1: I agree with that. Uh, Although the fact that Capitol Hill is now divided between Democrats and Republicans is going to make it tough for either side to push through its view of events, uh, as opposed to when the Republicans controlled both houses. Uh, So I think there's going to be pressure for both sorts of investigations, and they, they may act against each other, which again, may have the effect of focusing people's attention on the election itself.
0: So, so before we come on to the uh, the democratic field, and we're learning stuff all the time about some of the leading candidates, one question about Trump, because it was said, I think Steve Bannon said almost the day after Barr's letter emerged, that this will be Trump unleashed now, that the chains are off, which is a bit odd, because Trump's been pretty unleashed in some of his behaviour from day one. I mean, it's not like you can imagine Trump on Twitter somehow, you know, finally letting rip. On the other hand, already in the short time since then, Trump indicated that he was going to pursue a more aggressive agenda, for instance, on Obamacare, and he's had to back off from that within days. Mitch McConnell has made it clear to him there is no appetite in Congress to take a much firmer line on that. And so Trump has been reduced to saying he has got all these big plans, he is now off the hook. But you've got to reelect him to see what they are. You know, he's gonna, he needs a second term to repeal Obamacare. He's going to. So, in a sense, he's not unleashed. Not that much has changed. He's going to be the same person he ever was on Twitter. There is no more unleashing to go there. But in raw political policy terms, he's no less constrained than he was two weeks ago.
1: Yes, I think I think that's true. If we ask, what does it mean that he will be unleashed now? There as you suggested, there is no secret legislative agenda that he can now unfurl. I don't think there are any secret foreign policy initiatives. There's been a rumored peace plan for the Palestinians and Israelis. That's going to be unveiled yet again. I'll believe it when I see it. I that think one would not- be
0: weird to wait on Mueller. I mean, the idea that peace in yes. the Middle East, if you had a good plan, you'd, you wouldn't be waiting for this report to
2: But I think that the one area when he can be unleashed is back to the counterintelligence operation and whether whether he's really going to have some Republicans in Congress pursue that question. And I think from his point of view, it would be disappointing that he hasn't got much of a bounce in the opinion polls. His approval rating has moved up a, a really insignificant amount where you could have expected it might have gone up a bit more. I think there is a reasonable argument to say that actually his approval ratings operate within a fairly narrow range, so that he he's perhaps was already at its, its upper limit.
1: Right. And uh, the healthcare foray is interesting. I, he took a, a lot of heat about that. He has backtracked. But it's not part of a larger plan, really. I think when he's uh, unleashed, what he likes to do is promote chaos and throw things out and, and see what sticks on the wall and then decides what he wants to pursue. Uh, so I think we're gonna see certainly more chaos. And I think we will also continue to see the Trump that has already been unleashed, which is he has no hesitation about demeaning and excoriating his enemies. He has scant respect for the rule of law, for the division of powers. I think we can expect him to promote executive power wherever he can. If he is denied funds for a wall, he will find other ways to procure it. Uh, so I think we will continue to see the erosion of democratic cultures, democratic procedures, uh, checks and balances. This decision allows Trump to continue what he's been doing rather than to unleash a whole new fuselage that we have not yet anticipated.
0: He is threatening to shut the border, is that a real thing?
1: I don't think so. I think we will never hear the end of the border and the wall. That's red meat for his base. He's always concerned about his base. He's got to keep them on a knife's edge. He wants to keep them mobilized, angry. He's realized that nothing does that like talking about the wall. So I think we can expect to hear talk about the wall and sealing off the southern border uh, from now until he's no longer in public life. I don't think he's got to shut The entire border. I think he will try and take a couple measures that allow him to claim that he has taken steps to shut the border in ways that has not been shut before. Uh, America will run out of avocados in two weeks if the border is shut. The American automobile manufacturing industry will grind to a halt. I don't think he's going to go ahead with this, and I think he's been warned against it, but he will continue to use. Talk about the wall sealing off the southern border, invasion from the south, from lesser races invading America. He- We will not see the end of this.
2: I think the one thing that we will hear more from him about is China, because the question of reaching some kind of agreement with China seems to be coming to a head. And if he gets to the point where something is agreed with the uh, Chinese leadership, I think he's going to pivot onto that as the great success of his presidency, that he has confronted Chinese trade practices. And this is the one area where there is reasonable amount of bipartisan consensus about what he's doing.
1: I think that's right. And I think there's a a potential for a substantial achievement there. And there is confidence now that the talks have gone quite well in the last few weeks. So uh, I think if he reaches an agreement, he will, as Alan suggests, definitely pivot in that direction. And he will have for 2020, he he will have a series of uh, measures, pieces of legislation, foreign policy initiatives that that he can run on. And I don't think we we've begun to see that yet. But if he gets good advice about this, uh, he can put together and if the economy stays strong, he can put together a series of claims about his leadership, which will make him a formidable competitor in 2020.
0: If he, if he gets good advice, and if he takes it, those are two separate. <laughs> and thoughts. if he takes it, yes. <laughs> Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Let's get on to the question of who might take him on. So there are lots of things we could talk about here. We'll get on to Joe Biden in a sec. But this may be a completely spurious kind of context. But two elections, one completed, one ongoing, happening in the world this week. So the one that's completed is for the mayor of Chicago. Laurie Lightfoot is going to be the new mayor of Chicago. The one that's ongoing is for president of Ukraine, a very different place from Chicago, where it looks like a TV comedian, Zelensky, I think his name is, is the front runner to win that. So I don't think these two people have much in common, except they are the outsiders. So Laurie Lightfoot, as I understand it, never run for public office. I mean, she's also an insider in that she worked for Rahm Emanuel, and she's obviously very well connected, but never run for public office, relatively unknown in this field, and comes through dramatically. And here we have a guy, a TV comedian, who is, on every measure, not a conventional politician, and there is a pattern in democratic elections around the world, which is not that the comedian always wins, quite, but um, not having a record as a politician is a real advantage. If that were true, of the democratic field, who would that favour? Do you think? I mean, who's the real outsider here? Because you know, various people are burnishing their outsider credentials in one way and another, but who's the TV comic?
1: Well, it's not Bernie Sanders. Uh, He's (laughs) he's not that funny Uh, for a start. You can level (laughs) a lot of charges at him, but being a comic is not not one of them. Uh, He certainly qualifies as an outsider, however, and he fits the bill of someone who never really played by the rules of two-party politics, uh, perched himself outside the – Washington establishment. Uh, He's the leading money raiser in the democratic field right now, Uh, I think $20 million with an average contribution of $20 a piece. He has got to be a figure to be reckoned with in 2020. He also is moderating uh, some of his proposals. He still is a socialist, even though he doesn't proclaim himself as such. But I've always thought of him as the left-wing Trump, uh, someone standing outside the political system, emphasizing the corruption of the system and seeking and promising to drain the swamp, although in this case from the left rather than from the right. And it's pretty clear to me that he's going to be a force to be reckoned with um, more so than Warren, Senator Warren from Massachusetts, who has an impressive set of policies but I think is going to have trouble – getting traction in the ways that one has to get traction in the American political system. So one of the ways in which politics, democratic politics has changed is that those people representing positions that were thought to be outside the mainstream and thus as unelectable candidates, that has changed. And I think that's going to be true of 2020 as it was in 2016. If we imagine the anti-politics person in this race, the closest I think we can get to is Beto O'Rourke uh, out of Texas, enormous uh, charisma uh, based on the appeal of his personality and the morality that he's able to bring to his political sense, but with very little experience in government and with very little achievement really in any area of his life. I mean he is the one who whose experience encounter immersion in politics is the slightest, and I think he's appealing to Many Democrats for precisely that reason. It should be said he, that he comes from a very well entrenched political family in San Antonio, so uh, not everything can be taken at face value, and his wife is an heiress worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So this pays for some of his ability to drive across the country by himself and find himself uh, so that he can uh, become a plausible presidential candidate. You'll note a note of skepticism in my thinking there, but clearly he has a, a great deal of charisma and may come the closest, David, to your idea that 2020 might be an opportunity for someone who really uh, stands outside politics as conventionally conceived. I think
2: that there's a distinction to be drawn. um, And I think Trump is in some sense in a category of his own here for these outside candidates who who are the ones who speak from the id. And I would say that Trump falls into that category. And I would say actually Obama back in 2008 to considerable extent fell into this category onto whom things can be projected. And um, Beto O'Rourke seems to me to be the person who is most open to lots of projection from, he can be whoever people want him to be. There was some poster I keep seeing where Beto is Christ. So if if you want a kind of like messianic kind of character, and there does seem to be something of that going on in, in Western politics, he falls into that category. But Trump clearly did not pose himself as a messianic kind of character. He kind of more posed himself as, as, I am telling you an apocalypse is happening around, and I'm here to tell the supposed truth in relation to it. So I I think that it's difficult to generalise from what happened with Trump in 2016 into what's gone on into some of these elections in other parts of the world, including Europe, where these outsider candidates have come and are winning
0: so the one thing that Trump has in common with both Laurie Lightfoot, and the comedian in the Ukraine, is he also had never run in an election for public office until he won the big one. And yet the difference it seems to me between those kind of candidates and Bernie Sanders, is that though Bernie has never won the big one, he's been running all his life. I mean, it's, it's not like he's in any sense fresh to electoral mm-hmm. politics. And even O'Rourke. I mean, he's got a political history as you say, it's not a history of achievement, but it's a history of taking stands on positions. He fought and lost a campaign for the Senate. And there does seem to be an advantage to the candidates, where in a sense, there's nothing there historically. I mean, I don't know enough about Laurie Lightfoot in Chicago. But the fact that even a few months ago, she was barely noted as someone who might win this thing, and she sweeps to victory. It's not the kind of messianic projection. It's it's the There's an empty space here. And you can build a candidacy almost out of nothing, which I think Bernie hasn't got. I mean, Bernie, in a way, to me, the problem is, he has too much history. I mean, we haven't even gotten to Biden yet, who is the ultimate person who has too much history. But I still think there's a difference between the outsiders with a history, and the outsiders who just effectively are coming to this fresh.
2: I think there is. But then if you take the Corbyn as a comparison into this, then he somehow manages to combine both because he is obviously got a, a very long and fraught and difficult um, history.
0: But not as a national figure.
2: Maybe that's what saves him. But it was still still capable of someone who, onto whom many, many conflicting things can be projected.
1: Uh, I think of the democratic field in, in somewhat different terms. And that may be because I'm having trouble identifying the comedian in the bunch. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> well, we'll do this. We've got another... We, we have uh, we haven't eight, eight,
0: to uh, Pete, and I'm going to struggle to say his surname, but y- you think I should call him Pete Butt-Edge-Edge.
1: Butt-Edge-Edge is what we should call
0: him. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. very difficult. Um, He's made a couple of jokes this week that made me laugh, including about when he, he was asked, would he be the first gay president of the United States or was James Buchanan also gay. He said, My gaydar doesn't work very well, kind of <laughs> on a day to day basis. Okay, Don't ask okay. me to operate it on 150 <laughs> years. That makes sense. Well, me, th- there, he, smile. there he is.
1: There he is. Uh, he, so, uh, he does have a good smile. And we'll have to wait for a few more jokes before we uh, judge him to be the comedian. But let me throw out a different idea of how to think about the Democratic field. I think the central issue is whether the Democratic Party is going to put forward a figure of the left or the center. And there's two kinds of left politics that that are at play in the De- Democratic Party. Uh, one is a progressive economic politics encapsulated by Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal as a as a way of rebuilding America with heavy government involvement, heavy taxation, returning America to the 1930s, but updated to deal with the greatest challenge facing humankind, which is the heating up and incipient destruction of the world. And the other left position, of course, is cultural politics, uh, issues of feminism, of uh, sexuality, of race. And these are the issues roiling the democratic field. And the contest between the left candidates and the center candidates and who wins, I think, is going to go a long way toward deciding uh, if the Democrats are going to win in 2020. Historically, the role of the left has been to pull the center of the Democratic Party left without supplanting the center. This was the Franklin Roosevelt model in the 1930s. The left was so strong in the 1930s, he had no choice but to respond to their pressure and to move left as a consequence. The New Deal that we remember and celebrate as the Rooseveltian New Deal took shape in this cauldron of pressure from the left. Uh, Roosevelt moved left, and that's the New Deal that we remember, but he remained very much in charge. The occasions where the left arguably has supplanted the center, which is William Jennings Bryan in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, McGovern in 1972, those elections did not go well for the Democratic Party. And I'm not persuaded that they can go better this time in 2020. And how... The Democratic Party resolves this issue is going to have a major, major influence on the chances of the Democratic Party taking back the presidency in 2020.
2: I think I would add to that is, is that the Democrats have got a particular challenge in terms of the Electoral College, given what happened last time. I mean, the easiest way back to the White House is through the Midwest, through those states like Michigan and Pennsylvania that and Wisconsin, that really shouldn't have been lost from the Democrats' point of view in 2016 which would suggest that you go for the economic left message, but you're more cautious on the culture and identity questions. I can see, though, that actually how you have a democratic primary contest with the number of candidates that are in there at the moment, at least, and end up with that outcome is really quite difficult.
0: But Gary, do you think that someone like Joe Biden is essentially not nominatable in the current climate? I mean, you know, I said it's the candidates who have history. I mean, he has history on all fronts of the stuff that we're hearing about at the moment, his kind of touchy feely handsy history. But there's just his record. I mean, his role in the really contentious identity politics of the 1980s and 1990s, his record as a senator. I mean, all the things that even in conventional times are a barrier. It's very hard for former senators to become president. He's the one person in this field who feels to me, even though he's currently the front runner, he's just overburdened with history, even though he is also obviously the centrist candidate.
1: Yeah, so he entered politics in the 1970s, which is a long time ago. I am less worried about his history from the 1980s and 1990s. I think that can be overcome, especially if Obama were to weigh in In a very major way, which he has conspicuously not done and probably won't do for some time until we have a better sense of how the field is shaking out. But if Obama comes to his defense as a loyal member of his administration, as a representative of the new America, as someone who changed and transformed himself in the course of serving Obama and serving Obama well within the black community, that can help him enormously and help him overcome uh, some of the Anita Hill controversy. over Clarence Thomas's nomination to the Supreme Court in the early 90s where he was the great skeptic of her case that uh, she had been abused by him sexually and through sexual advances and allegations. I'm not sure he can overcome the latest round of accusations, which has to do with being much too comfortable with women, hugging them, kissing them, feeling their hair. His defense is that he's just a warm, fuzzy man who is very emotional and wants to give everybody his support. But in the Me Too moments, if many more women come forward in the next month to make similar accusations to the ones that have been made in the last week, uh, that I don't think he can survive.
2: I think he's also got trouble on financial sector issues, financial crisis issues because of his links with the credit card industry and the fact he's from Delaware, which in some ways operates as a tax haven. There's a whole lot of things in terms of his economic record on these, what happened in 2008 and after and why people weren't prosecuted and why they weren't regulated more tightly that I think that Biden is really open to substantial criticism on. So can I ask
0: you about the person I'm going to call Mayor Pete, because he's currently flavour of the moment, though it's also true that Obama I think two or three years ago, identified him as a possible outside candidate for 2020. To me, he's the one who fits the mould of the clean slate outsider. I mean, obviously he has run for public office, but it's mayor of a town of 100,000 people in Indiana. He's got an interesting backstory. He's clearly an impressive person in lots of ways, but he doesn't have history. I mean, he's running on this kind of unusual prospectus, which is he has more executive experience than the current president or vice president, because he's run a small town. But what he does not have is any political baggage, as far as I can see. On the one hand, it seems very unlikely that this guy could become the democratic nominee. But on the other hand, it seems to me that in this entire field, he's the one that genuinely fits the outsider mold, mm-hmm. the kind of you know, clean slate mold. And he's good, at what he does i mean he's a he's an impressive candidate,
1: yes, and also and this is what part of what distinguishes American politics. People are coming from the outside all the time uh, Americans like outsiders of his sort, unsullied by the political process, and how many times have Americans chosen an outsider and then been profoundly disappointed by him or her when it turns out they don't have sufficient executive experience but the the suspicion of the federal government and the contamination via politics, runs so deep in American political culture that the, the search for an outsider unsullied by that is never-ending. And he does fit that. So if we put him in a context of other outsiders who have seemingly come out of nowhere, he doesn't appear so unusual, and it doesn't appear to me at all far-fetched. Uh, he's going to have a very serious run at the presidency. I also think, as Democratic strategists think how they – regain the White House. Helen's point earlier about the Electoral College and how do you amass enough votes in the Electoral College to push the Democrat over the top. The Democrats will not get that simply by mobilizing their base, even if that mobilization is huge. And this is an argument against a candidate coming out of Chicago or New York or or California. It is an argument for a candidate coming out of Indiana, an extremely conservative state. And I've had people tell me that uh, South Bend is an industrial city. It's the site of Notre Dame, the university. It has a different uh, political temper than the rest of the state. It is still in Indiana. And for a gay mayor to have this kind of success in Indiana means a great deal. In order for the Democrats to win, they are going to either have to pick up uh, working class votes in the Midwest that they did not get in 2016, or they're going to have to pick up Texas, which may well be in play, and this is where Beto O'Rourke has a lot of a lot of credibility, or they're going to have to pick up a significant slice of Republican suburban voters, those people who can't stand Trump. But if a Democratic candidate is seen as being a tax and spend person or too militant on cultural questions, they will hold their nose and vote for Trump rather than vote for the Democratic candidate. And Mayor Pete is the kind of Democrat that they will want to vote for. He's a gay man, but a good family man, um, devout religiously, a Rhodes Scholar, an Army veteran, uh, has checked all the boxes. He is someone who has a kind of profile that is going to sell in places where Democrats don't normally do well. And that is why there is so much interest in him now. And one can expect more interest to develop as the primary season gathers steam. Now, the Democratic primary season, like the Republican one, is a marathon. And people are put to the test. It's not always the right test because it's not a governing test. It's, it's, it's how many debates can you endure and still come out on top. But it does test people in very strenuous ways. And that is where it'll be determined where this man whose experience is limited to one city of 100,000 can make a leap to the national stage.
2: I think the candidate that we should talk about who we haven't talked about is Kamala Harris, because I think that she's got the potential, particularly if Biden is not able to run, to occupy quite a lot of the, the center ground. I also think that we do have to bear in mind, which I think we brought out the last time that we discussed this, is, is if you look at the last two contested primaries for the Democrats, 2008, 2016, that African-American voters really do matter, not least because of the sequence of the early primaries. In terms of candidate getting momentum and in each case really in 2008 and 2016 it was the mobilization of african-american voters by first obama and then hillary clinton then that secured them the nomination and i think that the fact that um, kamala harris is who she is and and is a woman is quite significant in this respect particularly which i will have to say i wouldn't rule out as a possibility that obama might not prefer her to biden does obama really want to saddle his legacy with all the issues that Biden brings.
1: Yes, which is a, another reason why I think Obama will wait until the field shakes out. I think Harris will be a very serious contender. And I think she'll be a more formidable national candidate than the African-American senator from New Jersey, Cory Booker, than he will be. And uh I think the mobilization of the African-American vote is very, very important for the Democrats. And I think she is someone who is trying to position herself so that she can reach toward the center of the Democratic Party. And her success will, I think, nationally will depend on how well she can execute a kind of Obama bridge.
0: And do you think she beats Trump?
1: Uh, I I don't have confidence in that right now. I think the uh, racial politics that Trump has unleashed are so powerful and so poisonous um, that it may be difficult for a person of color to win an election against him in 2020. It's going to have to be one hell of a candidate and that person is going to have to have uh, tremendous strength in Republican suburban strongholds. There are models for that now. The the model in Georgia, and the model in Florida, uh, very encouraging runs by African American candidates in Southern states that came very close to winning the election. I think it's up to the Democrats to build on the lessons they learned from that of quite extraordinary uh, mobilization of the Democratic base, while combining that with the ability to bridge toward voters who are not normally inclined to vote Democratic, who are card-carrying Republicans. And to do that is going to mean moderating the cultural politics and perhaps some of the progressive politics that are so powerful in the Democratic field right now. If we move beyond individual candidates, this is where the struggle between the left and the center of the Democratic Party become so important. It's not just a struggle of individuals. It's a struggle between uh, two rival conceptions of what the Democratic Party should be. Stay tuned to that over the next six months to nine months into the debates and what kind of future and vision the Democrats are able to put forward. What I'm hoping for is some combination of left and center uh, because historically that has been the best recipe for a democratic victory.
0: We're going to record an episode soon with Gary to put this in a wider context. There is literally no one who knows more about the history of the left and American politics than Gary Gerstle does, and we're going to get him to talk us through that history as we move closer to the moment of truth for the Democratic Party this time around. Do take a look at our show notes if you want more information about today's episode and all the things that we've been talking about And do please join us again in our regular slot on Thursday. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.